Let's pray together. Father, we declare our absolute dependence on you. And Father, we know on a personal scale, on a micro level, that in times of great difficulty in our own lives, of struggle and hardship, or pain, or loss, or confusion, Father, that we recognize our own weaknesses. And we tend to turn to you in those moments differently, more intensely, more necessarily than we do at other times where we might tend towards self-sufficiency. Father, in the same sense as we see this world in turmoil and war in the Holy Land, Father, I pray that many would turn to you. Father, I pray that the eyes of, the, of those called in darkness, both Palestinian, Arab, Jewish, Lord, would turn to you. They would hear, be exposed to, respond in faith to the gospel, and turn to Jesus, the King of all kings. Father, I pray for wisdom for those in authority over us who will make decisions that will affect us all. That Father, beyond their own abilities, and Father, certainly contrary often to the decisions we've seen in the past and their own patterns, Father, that you would guide their thinking, you would redirect their hearts, you would steer their course, and Father, they would make decisions that are wise and good and just. Father, we pray for those many families affected. So many have suffered loss that will never be atoned for in this life. Peace, Lord, that will not be theirs, save for the Prince of Peace. Father, we pray for healing. Father, we pray for justice to be done. We pray for righteousness to prevail. And Lord, we pray that in all of this, your people would be faithful to you. Lord, those called by your name, those truly Abraham's, Abraham's seed, who are those because they are in Christ. Lord, that we would be faithful to you, that we would trust you, that we would depend on you. Father, I pray that in these difficult times we would not grow more cynical but more faithful. Father, that our, our doubts would give way to greater and greater levels of devotion. And Father, that as we search your word, we would encounter you there. And in, in so doing, encounter peace and hope and encouragement for the future. Father, we would not be fatalistic nor fearful, but we would be confident in your promises. For you, Lord, shall reign. You shall surely reign. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you have done, all that you are still doing as you sit on your throne, and all that you will do when you are fully revealed in that day of your great return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we're working our way through, through these pastoral epistles. And while I think there is sometimes a necessity to maybe redirect a preaching course, the sermon plans for a church based on events that are happening, that's typically not the best course of action, I think. And, and I was thinking about the relationship of this text here in the middle of the third chapter of Paul's second letter to Timothy. How does that relate to the events that we're facing in this world today, particularly for, for believers? 
And let me encourage you in this way. What we need most right now as Christians is not a timeline. It's not an eschatology chart. What we need most right now is the encouragement from God's Spirit and God's Word to continue in Christ. To be faithful to the end regardless of what comes. We need to be able to preach the same message and hear the same words spoken today in this space that we could preach or hear in any space where the church gathers at any place on the planet. To have the confident assurance that the will of God will be done. That what He wants most for us is perseverance and endurance in the face of whatever difficulty may come, whatever challenges we may face. Not to have an escapist attitude, not to subconsciously think it might somehow be better for us if the world gets worse and worse because then we'll simply be raptured out of it. But instead, remember the commission that we've been given to make Christ known to the edges of the planet, to all nations, to the ends of the earth, believing in the authority of Christ to do so, and be faithful to that end as long as He grants us opportunity. And so my challenge to you today is this. In face of what we see in the world, on the macro level, or what you see in your life, continue. Continue in Christ. Because there are going to be so many challenges, there are going to be so many difficulties, so many obstacles, there are going to be so many people that will disappoint, there are going to be so many patterns, there are going to be poor patterns to follow, there are going to be so many reasons that people are going to have not to be faithful. And that's the landscape that was surrounding Timothy in the first century. In fact, it's the common landscape of the church of true believers in every century, in every generation, in every culture, in every place where the church has grown and taken root. These same challenges prevail. But consider the parallels so we can see just the commonality of, of human behavior, human attitudes, the attacks of the enemy, the way the world works. Consider the landscape surrounding Timothy as Paul's writing these letters to him. One, there's so much bad teaching. There's no way to summarize that in a technical way other than just so much bad teaching was prevalent within and without the church. We can study history and culture and we can get a sense of the challenges of Artemis of, Di uh, Artemis of Ephesus or Diana of Ephesus or so many pagan gods and things, but those weren't their greatest challenges. The greatest challenges to new believers in the first century was false teaching about Christ, false teaching about His Word, misrepresentation and Paul doesn't give very much room for those false teachers in terms of their own self-deception no they're intentional they're charlatans false teachers misleading deceiving so much bad teaching bad doctrine bad beliefs in chapter 2 of this letter we saw this in verse 16 avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This bad teaching is misleading people and it has a real effect on their lives this isn't just theoretical he says their talk will spread like gangrene. That's just sort of the nature of false teaching. For some reason, because of the depravity of the human mind and the way this world works, it seems like bad teaching gets a foothold faster than good teaching does and spreads much more quickly and is much more popular. He gives this example in verse 18. Those like Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 17 have in verse 18 swerved from the truth. This is the line they should have run. This is where the truth would take you. But they swerved from this. They detoured off of this. And it didn't just affect them. It affected lots of other people. They upset the faith of some. In chapter 3, we saw this in verse 8. Examples going way back to Old Testament times. Of those who would mislead even the leadership of Israel. 
people who shouldn't be misled, people who should have known and understood, recognized that Moses and Aaron were representing God and speaking the truth and seeing the faithfulness of God to them over generations, yet they didn't. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified. That was the landscape. That's our landscape today. Not only bad teaching, but the escalation, and more than escalation of immorality, the normalization of it. I mean, that's what we see. It's not just that there's more evil than there's ever been. It's that evil is normal today. It's accepted. It's commonplace. It's assumed. And not only is it assumed in the world, it's assumed even in the church that the demands of Scripture are not reasonable for us, that they're not actionable, that they, they defy what we're able to do as people. We just can't meet those standards. We've normalized deviancy. We've normalized immorality. Paul wrote like this to Timothy. He said, understand this in the last days, and those last days aren't something that appear on a prophetic chart or on an end times timeline. Those are those days that commenced at the ascension of Christ and continue until he returns. Understand this, in these last days there will come times of difficulty. Now that doesn't mean the difficulty won't be escalating because we see it here. People are going to love themselves, love money, etc. We saw this whole list and I expounded on that last week. It's just more and more normal that the world is going to look like this. And this is what we're seeing. And so us of a slightly older generation, those of you older than I am, are probably sitting around thinking, how did we get here? It's a world I don't recognize. And how did it happen so quickly? Well, that's the nature of things. That's the nature of humanity. Not only their morality, but the awareness. Just this constant specter, though it's hovering sometimes in the background, sometimes it's right in your face. It's this constant specter of persecution. Along with this knowledge that following Christ is going to be costly. Do you see the parallels? The specter hovering, growing. That faithfulness to Christ will exact a cost. Now listen, I'm not saying this theoretically. I really want you to hear me on this today, particularly this younger generation that's in this room. I'm not giving you a history lesson of what Timothy faced and early church faced. I'm giving you the preparation to understand if you're going to be faithful to Christ, it's going to cost you something. And you have to decide in, in the calm and quiet spaces like today, in the peace of the gathering of brothers and sisters who love you and support you, that when you're not with us, and when you're out there, so to speak, that you're willing to pay a price, because it's going to be costly. And this has been a constant theme of Scripture from the very beginning. Listen to the sort of things that Paul wrote about. He speaks of, in, in chapter 1 of this letter, he speaks of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 10, the gospel of which he was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer. You get the connection? This is the truth. The gospel is more than just an ABCs of how to get saved and go to heaven. It's a declaration of who the king of this world is. It's a declaration of absolute and ultimate truth that all will eventually bow before the knee of this great king. It's a message of deliverance from the kingdom of this world and its sin and its darkness so that you can know and follow Christ as king of your life and enjoy him, worship him, reign with him forever and ever. It's a gospel of, of kingdom and life eternal. He says, for this reason, this truth, this message of ultimate truth, which I am willing to speak whenever and wherever in front of whomever, that's why I suffer. The gospel would, created, would have created no suffering for Paul 
If Paul would have been covert, if he would have been private, if he would have been silent, if Paul would have put his faith and trust in Jesus and gone home and tended his farm or a garden or raised some animals and never had another conversation in his life, he would never have been persecuted. But if you're going to declare this truth, and if when challenged, you're going to say, yes, I believe that truth exclusively, it's going to be costly. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remember Jesus, what you saw and heard. He died. He was raised physically. He is the promised Messiah. He's the one the Old Testament leads us up to so that we might understand this is the Christ, not a Christ, not a revolutionary, not a Messiah figure. This is the promised one of God for us, for which I am suffering. And he says, because of this, I am willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that every person in every place might have opportunity to hear who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that's what he means for the salvation of the elect, that through my suffering, through my labor, I will do whatever it takes and pay whatever price so that they might know Christ. This is why I suffer. And just in, th- just in case, again, we're just looking at this historically and we think this doesn't apply really to us. It's not the world we live in. This is not our culture. This is not our context. Listen to what he said in chapter 2, I mean chapter 3, verse 12, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, will be persecuted. All. You want to be faithful to Jesus? It's going to cost you. Everybody, everywhere, every time, every place, every culture. Bad people are going to go from worse to worse. But you will pay a price. And again, this has always been the case. It was so for Christ. It was so for all those who were faithful to Christ. Jesus said it even more plainly than we see in 2 Timothy. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. You Read all that in John chapter 15, verses 18 and following. What was Jesus saying in that? Listen to the formula, the equation. As long as you live among ungodly people, people who deny the truth about God, people who live as if he doesn't exist, people who deny his teachings and commandments, people who live in a way that's antagonistic towards him and towards his followers, as long as you live in that context, but you choose to live a godly life. Godly people choosing to live a godly life among ungodly people are going to be persecuted by the world. That's the formula. So if you're sitting there thinking, okay, this is grim. Give me some encouragement today. Well, here's how you can avoid the persecution. There are really only two ways. You can either, A, be out of this world, which would mean dead, or so completely withdrawn from it that you don't have contact with ungodly people anymore, which is not feasible for almost everybody everywhere. So you can either be withdrawn from it, or you can be like it. So if you're in this world and you're like this world, you won't be persecuted by this world. But if you're in this world and you're like Christ and you're not of this world, still in this world, you'll be persecuted by this world. And that's what Jesus said. You will collide with it. The landscape then leads to so many. I didn't want to bother with statistics. 
I read them because they give me understanding. They can become kind of boring and tedious. But let's just leave it here and say that there are far too many people abandoning the faith. That's not just a modern occurrence, but it certainly seems to be escalating in our times. People that we once looked to, people whose music we listened to, people who wrote books that we bought, or more closely people that we know or care about or looked up to or reared in our own homes. And they walk away abandoning this faith. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.15, You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. They've turned away from it. He names names. Phygelus, Hermogenes. And in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 18, he told Timothy this. He said, wage the good warfare. This is going to be a fight. Hold on to your faith and a good conscience. Hold on to what you believe is true. This is doctrine, truth in this hand, and this is life and behavior in this hand. Hold on to those two things. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Listen to how that applies to me and you. I think I believe this. This I hold to be true, but my life demonstrates this because this is what I do. The inconsistency between the two invariably will lead to a self-destructive life. We can't persist that way. And we see this picture of shipwreck all around us. We see the shattered hulls, the splintered pieces of broken faith, the people that we know and care about, people public and private, people who separate that biblical truth from daily life. And what was the result? Eventually, they had to choose what they really believed, what they were taught, what they once claimed to be true, or where their lifestyle and choices have taken them and what they do now. And here's what we find invariably, invariably. People believe what they do. They believe what they do. And over time, they must shift necessarily for their own sort of mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual self-preservation. They have to shift what they believe to fit what they do. And all of a sudden, their theology is not anchored to the rock anymore. It's not bound to God anymore. It's, it's the theology of self. It's the theology of pleasure, theology of self-will, self desire, self-fulfillment, self-actualization. We do this, we swerve from the truth, and everything just gets wrecked. Look what he says to Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 10. You, however. I mean, that's a pivotal point in this text. Look, I understand the world that you live in, Timothy. God understands the world that you and I live in. This is not ivory tower kind of stuff. This is real life. You walk out this door, and this is the world you're in. That's your landscape. But you, what are you going to be? What are you going to do? You, however, two incredibly powerful words. In that description, in that depiction of our current situation, what are you going to be? I want us to pray about that text right now. Father, I pray that over these next few moments that you would give us just an inordinate amount of focus and understanding. And that, Father, way beyond, so far beyond anything that I might say or suggest, imply or explicitly state, Father, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, move us, move our thinking and our, our wanting. Father, empower us to that which is right and good. Do what your word says, Father, I pray, in ways that we could see and experience that you give us both the will and the ability to do that which is pleasing to you is our confident hope. Mine as I speak, 
ours as we hear and respond, that you will be at work in this. Father, I pray that we would do your word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read this text together. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let let me give you a list from this text of some keys for continuing, because that's the theme. We know historically, and we know what Paul's implying from his words, that this is near the end of the journey for him. It's the last book he's going to write, the last words he's going to put to pen. It's in the last season of his life. What would he say to Timothy, this young man that he cares about so much, his child in the faith, a successor in the line of pastors and elders, the leader in this church? His desire of him, obviously, is that he's going to finish well like Paul intends to finish well. That He's going to cross the finish line still running forward. What are the keys? What are the things he's telling him in this passage and telling us to continue to be faithful, to be steadfast, and not fall away, to handle whatever comes? Let's start here with number one. This one's huge. I don't even know how to state it with enough emphasis to do it justice. Every single one of us in this room, though Lord willing, I hope we'll never have to, and I hope we'll always have the company of others and the fellowship of the saints and the brotherhood of the family of God and a real sense of being locked together arm in arm as one man for the gospel as Paul prays for the Philippians. So I hope this won't be the case, but all of us have to be ready if necessary and willing to stand alone. When you're the only one in your family, when you're the only one at your job, when you're the only one in your friendship group, when you feel like you're the only one in your classroom, are you going to be willing to stand alone? We will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ in groups, in parties. We will not stand there and say, well, you know, I would have, but, I mean, look, well, you know what was happening, you know the pressure around me, you know all the people. Will you be willing to stand alone? He addresses Timothy in the you, and this you is singular. You. As for you, Timothy, you're only responsible for you. And you can't let what other people do dictate what you're going to do. That will never fly. That won't work with God. You are responsible for you, and you can't let others determine what you are going to be and do. So you, Timothy, what are you going to do? You've got to establish your sense of you. What do I believe? What am I convinced of? Where do I stand? What do I hold to be true? What will I not move off of? And you think of the times that Paul himself suffered alone. We'll read this a little bit later 
in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 4, where Paul talks about one of his many persecutions. The list is long. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I'm reading that text, and I thought, the reality is for a lot of us, we get in that situation where we realize, man, I thought you were with me. I thought you agreed with me on this. Come on, you and I have had this conversation a hundred times. I, I thought we were the same on this. I, I thought this was common ground and we held, and then you find you're standing there, and you're defending yourself alone, and now everyone's gone. I wondered how many of us would just fold it up right there. Give in. Succumb. He says, all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But here's something Paul realized. Consider the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. He stood by me. And he strengthened me. In that moment, he stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed fully and that the Gentiles might hear it. Paul doesn't say, the Lord stood by me and he kept them from hitting me. The Lord stood by me and he kept them from beating me. The Lord stood by me and he kept them from lashing me or chaining me or imprisoning me. He didn't say that. Because all those things he was willing to suffer so that they might hear. What he said was, the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me. In the moment where I was ready to fold, he gave me spine. He strengthened me in that moment. And he enabled me to do what he sent me to do in that moment, even though it was costly. And I pray for that sort of spine. The sort of spine that's not built on personality. The sort of spine that's built on faith that says, okay, God, I'm where you want me to be. I'm standing where I ought to stand. I'm speaking what is true. And trust in that moment for the strength to stand. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. When no one else will, he, he does. He will. Be willing to stand alone. Number two. This is a huge theme, and it's worth not just a... Uh, a point in a sermon, it's worth a conference or a series of sermons, but it's a theme that you've heard us revisit a thousand times. But you cannot escape this. It, it runs like a thread throughout the, the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. And this constant reminder that's so simple, so obvious, and yet too many of us still don't engage ourselves. Find a mentor whose life is worth imitating. Find you somebody whose life is worth imitating. When Paul said to the Corinthians, you follow me as I follow Christ, find you somebody that you can follow that will help you follow Christ. I'm not saying idol worship. I'm not saying the elevation of a person to the status of a Messiah figure for you. I'm simply saying the reality of finding someone in your life, older and wiser, if not in years in the faith, someone who's got a track record, of doing this, not just saying this. Someone who's been there and walked it and who knows it and understands it and does it. Find someone whose life you can say, I want to be like that person. Tell me how. Tell me your stories. Tell me your challenges. Tell me how you read the scriptures and show me. Tell me how you've brought them to bear in the situations of your life. Tell me how you've been faithful. Find someone whose life is worth imitating. And then, and you can't separate these two or else the cycle is broken, the intention of God is undone, live a life that someone else can imitate. I mean, that's the twofold challenge for every believer. I'm, I need somebody who sets an example for me that's worth following. And I need to be someone for somebody who is worth following. 
And this is exactly what Paul has told Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, you followed my teaching. I mean, all right, you, you know how I've expounded the words. I've given you the truth. You followed my conduct. I mean, you've seen whether or not I do this. You see me up close. You, you followed my aim in life. You, you know what I'm about. Timothy, you could express my worldview. You know why I'm here. You've seen my faith and patience, my love and steadfastness, and also you've seen some, some difficult things too. You've seen me persecuted and suffer, but you didn't see me fold. You didn't see me quit. You didn't see me beg off. You saw me persist. I've been for you a life worth imitating. Remember what you learned. Remember what you learned from me, Timothy. That's going to serve you. That's going to serve you. You might find yourself in a dark Roman dungeon itself yourself sometime and remember me paul did this paul suffered this paul wrote these words while suffering this and you pick up that letter to the philippians and you read about joy and faith and suffering paul stood alone paul thought he had allies and they all turned on him if i have to i'll stand alone you remember this but not only that you be this you do this for others remember what he said in second timothy chapter 2 Right at the very beginning, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, it's not enough for you to follow. You have to inconvenience yourself and get engaged in the lives of other people. And yet it gets messy and it takes time. And you won't have the same recreational opportunities and, and free time available to you when you're pouring yourself into others, but it'll be worth it. Do this. Find a mentor, be a mentor. Number three, have the courage to be unpopular, opposed, or even attacked for your faith and faithfulness. In the landscape of the world that you're in right now, not that this is, was less true before, but it certainly is abundantly, evidentially clear now. There's going to take, there's going to need to be some courage to stay the course. He told that to Timothy. He says, from all these things, you follow the persecution and sufferings, from all of these things, the Lord delivered me. And I know this is not the sort of thing that we want to hear. It's not the sort of thing I want to think about. We'd all like to envision ourselves if per real persecution comes, that we'll be Daniel in the lion's den, and we'll get shut in there, and all of a sudden the mouth will be closed, and we'll walk out. Or we'll be like the three young men who got thrown into a fiery furnace, and we will not be touched by the flame. But that was not Paul's perspective. That's not what he taught Timothy. That's not what the Holy Spirit instructed the early church. The instruction is this. You will be delivered. Now, the means of your deliverance may be temporal. Paul didn't die for doing these things. He was not dead yet. He's still speaking. They had imprisoned him and beaten him, both Romans and Gentiles alike. Jews and Gentiles alike, I mean. He'd suffered at the hands of both. He's still living. But his confidence was in something that was ultimate, not in something that was temporary. Now again, God may deliver like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. He may. He may change the hearts of the captors, the oppressors, the persecutors, the evil people. But he may not. I mean, we know what happened to Paul. Persecution, punishment, pain, prison. He says, you know this is what he wrote to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What, what was he talking about in Philippians, chapter 1? What had happened to him? All those things. 
Persecution, punishment, pain, prison. But yet he says a few verses down in verse 18 of chapter 1, Yes, and I will rejoice. You know what's happened to me. I will choose joy. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Oh, wait, so you're saying Paul was counting on getting out of prison. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. All his hopes did not hinge on physical deliverance. Well, how do you know? Well, listen to what he says. I know that all this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. In other words, I'll never turn my back on Christ. I'll not be ashamed of Christ. Nothing you can do to me is going to make me denounce him. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. I'm not trying to sensationalize this text in 2 Timothy, nor the times in which we live. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, for you young people, you might die for this. But if I were preaching this in another place, many nations in Africa, all throughout the Middle East, the vast majority of the continent of Asia, I would be saying just that. You may die for this. In fact, I would be giving an invitation at the end. Come and follow Christ Jesus the King, the one who sets you free of sin and the death that sin deserves and ushers you into his kingdom forever and ever. You will have joy and peace in his presence forevermore, but you might die for choosing that. And that would be the invitation. He says, he says I will rejoice and with full courage, now as always, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. As long as I stay, I will continue to labor in the gospel. I'll keep doing this. I'm not going to stop. But if it should cost me everything, I'll be with Christ, and that's better. That's gain. See, when I say courage, I'm not talking about a John Wayne persona. I'm not talking about a unique, special characteristic that Paul had that most people don't. I'm talking about the sort of conviction that goes so deep, deep down that it's rooted in eternal things and not temporary ones. Number four. You want to persist? You want to continue in Christ? Be aware of the spiritual principle that applies to all of us. I think it's universal. Know that you're always moving spiritually. You have to choose daily which direction you're moving. Those false teachers that he spoke of, going from bad to worse, the term is they're progressing. Your translation may even use that word. They were progressing. In what sense were these false teachers and, teach, and, and those that they misled progressing? In what sense? They were getting better at being bad. They were getting worse and worse and worse. There's a spiritual dynamism to our lives. We're either becoming more mature, more formed in our faith, more deeply rooted in it, more confident of it, more certain and assured, more like Ephesians chapter 4, mature, growing up in the fullness of Christ, or we are becoming less so. Now, I don't know what terminology you would use. Well, I'm just kind of plateaued spiritually. You know, I don't know, I've just kind of been in a long, dry spell. Nothing's changed much in my life for these last several years. It's a deception. 
It's a deception. Maybe it's so subtle you can't see it. It wouldn't surprise me if people close to you can see it. But whether or not it's easily perceived or it isn't, it's still true. We're either moving more towards Christ or away from Him all the time. The reason we're pushing this truth and understand it and this life that accompanies it, do it, is because that moves you towards Christ. But to deny the truth or to not live according to it is going to keep moving you away from Him. You're moving right now. I mean now. Always moving. You and I have to choose which direction we're going to move constantly, daily. What will we choose? Number five, I hit this earlier on, but I want to make this point again because it's so clear, I think, in the text. Always do what you claim to believe. Never separate doctrine from life. I mentioned a certain popular church in its ministry last week as an example, not to take shots at during a difficult time for them, but just as an example of the fallacy and the futility of thinking you can separate biblical doctrine and actual life practice. To say, I believe in a biblical ethic of sex, for instance, in marriage, it's between one man and one woman, and, and I believe in a biblical ethic of gender that God created, male and female, but to then have a pastoral practice or a practical lifestyle or an ethic that says, but if this is who you are, then you will do this and live this and will accept that or in, endorse that or draw a circle around that is false. You can't. You can't separate the two things. And that's why Paul told Timothy from the very get-go, Timothy, understand this. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. By, by so doing, you will save yourself and others. Now, I can appreciate the way that's worded and the way the Holy Spirit gave Paul those words. It's so positive. Watch your life. That's positive. Your doctrine closely. Save yourself. Save others. I love the positive approach. As I was putting this text together, I struggled with keeping the words positive because I wanted to use some words like don't and never and be careful of and because the flip side of that is also true. Timothy, you have to understand if you teach something that you don't do, you're going to sabotage yourself spiritually. That's a fast track to spiritual self-destruction. And if you cause people to think you can have this theoretical idea of what's right and good and true, but you don't have to do it and don't live it, don't kid yourself. Eventually, you're going to move to this, invariably. You're going to move to this, and you're going to say, you know, but what I really believe is this, and it's what I've chosen to do, because we all ultimately believe what we do. We believe what we do. And that's where our system comes in. That's practical. That's real-life belief. It's not theoretical. My functional theology shows up every day in what I do. We just had an example of this on Wednesday night in one of our open classes. We're teaching on the sovereignty of God exercised through providence. How does God accomplish His purposes in this world? Does He do it arbitrarily? Does He do it with concurrence? The answer to that is yes, concurrence with people and things and events. God works in all these things. But one example of what's practical about sovereignty is this. You can't tell me you really believe in the sovereignty of God if you don't pray. If you believe that God is in control, God accomplishes his purposes in the world, God does what he wills, and no one can thwart him, as the Bible clearly says, that is the most powerful inducement to prayer because my God is good and desirous of good, and my God is powerful, in fact, all-powerful, able to accomplish the good. 
and he invites me to pray. And I know that God works in the means of things and the end of them, how it's going to be accomplished and how he chooses to accomplish it through the prayers of his people. So if I really believe sovereignty, I will pray. If I don't, if I believe man is preeminent and man is ultimately decisive, then why pray? I'll try to convince and persuade, but I won't seek God. Likewise, if I believe that Jesus sits on a throne and he is the authority over the affairs of nations, then we will be praying right now, not just talking, not just speculating, but praying. Number six. Look at verse 14 before I read you number six. He says, but as for you, that second statement there, he makes a turn from this is the way things are, but you, you're going to be different. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What are these sacred writings he's talking about? He's talking about the scriptures. And really, specifically, he's talking about what we would call the Old Testament scriptures because the New Testament has not yet been fully formed, codified, and circulated. So he's talking about the Bible that they had, the scriptures of God, the Old Testament. But listen to what he's saying here for a moment. You know whom you have learned it. Now, that's partially Paul, for sure. He was Paul's child in the faith. But it's more than just Paul. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Let me do something here just, just really quick for a moment. How many of you that are adults in the room had parents or grandparents that took you to church from your earliest memories? They took you to church since you were little. Raise your hand. Every single one of us who were able to raise our hands should thank God that that was the case. You know, I see terms all the time being kicked around. Oh, then you were indoctrinated. You bet you I was. You bet you I was. I was taught the doctrine of truth since I can remember. And for you who are children, young people, kids in this room, be thankful that your parents are bringing you here. Be thankful that your parents are having you in Bible study. Be thankful that your parents take you to D groups and want you to be there on Wednesday night. Be thankful that they do that because they don't want the world to indoctrinate you. They don't want the world to push you into its mold so that you conform to it, so that you're assimilated into it. We ought to thank God every day for this, but here's something you've got to do, whether you're young or old. It's true of us all. You've got to move from an acquaintance with to a conviction of the truths of God. I mean, I will tell you, I grew up with an acquaintance with the truth. I grew up with it. I grew up with family devotions. I grew up with church and Sunday school and Bible studies. I grew up with youth retreats. We didn't have D now. We were youth retreats. I grew up with all that. I got a Gideon Bible every year at school. I went to a Christian school for three years. I was acquainted with all these things. There's a huge difference in being acquainted with these things and being convinced of these things. And you've got to make that progression for yourself. In the back of my mind, I know these things to be true. No. Are you convinced these things are true? Will you base your life on these things being true? Will you live your life according to these things because they're true? That's very different. It's very different from a theoretical understanding or I was sent to these things. Yeah, I believe that's true. No, I have to know these things. 
This means you have to make this yours, to study it, to commit to knowing it, and to submit to doing it. That's why he leads in with this very next verse, verse 16. All scriptures breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That doesn't mean that complete in that sense doesn't mean that you become fully formed like Christ just simply through the study of Scripture. But it means it will equip you, it will give you the tools that you need to do everything God wants you to do and be in every way the sort of person God wants you to become. It's all there. It's all there. Trust in the power of this word. It has the power to do this. Commit to the understanding of this word. What we do here is critical to that. Listening to a message taught, the scriptures expounded upon, but it is not sufficient by itself. It's necessary. It's not sufficient. What we do here is vital and it's important and it's necessary to your health, but it's not sufficient for you to be this complete equipped, ready for whatever God wants you to do, whatever situation you want, He wants you to face. That's the equipping. I'm going to make you ready. I'm going to make you wise. Primarily wise unto salvation. How that you will know Christ and how to follow Christ. And then how you will serve Christ and be useful to Christ. And how you'll endure for Christ. It's all here. This is part, but you have to commit yourself to it. To know this word. And again, think of what I'm saying here. You commit to the understanding of it. But you also have to submit to the authority of it. I want to do more than just know how the pieces fit. I want to do more than know the different types of Scripture, and some is prophecy, and some is poetry, and some is history, and some is law. I want to know more than that. I want to do this. I want to labor to do this, to submit to it. I'll give you a quote that's a summary that I, I found it to be helpful myself this week in thinking about this text and thinking about the context in which we live this is from John Stott in his commentary on 2 Timothy. He said, The times of stress in which we seem to be living are very distressing. Sometimes one wonders if the world and the church have gone mad. So strange are their views and so lax are their standards. Some Christians are swept from their moorings by the flood tide of sin and error. Others go into hiding as offering the best hope of survival, the only alternative to surrender. But neither of these is the Christian way. But as for you, Paul says to us, as he did to Timothy, stand firm. Never mind if the pressure to conform is very strong. Never mind if you're young, inexperienced, timid, and weak. Never mind if you find yourself alone in your witness. You followed my teaching so far. Now continue in what you've come to believe. You know the biblical credentials of your faith. Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Even in the midst of these grievous times in which evil men and imposters go on from worse, from bad to worse, it can make you complete. The Scripture can make you complete, and it can equip you for your work. Let the Word of God make you a man of God. Remain loyal to it, and it will lead you on into Christian maturity. And I would add to that, and it will lead you on to perseverance to the end. Let's pray. Father, I pray that before the enemy could come in and snatch up words of truth, and they're, they're taken away like 
seeds off a sidewalk carried in the beaks of birds. Father, that your word would take root in us, that your Holy Spirit would implant it in us, impress upon us what your word requires of us, says to us, how it encourages us or corrects us, how it equips us, whatever it may be today, Father, that that would not be lost, that our time here would not have been for nothing. Father, I pray you'd bring to bear very specifically, very personally, every challenge made today, every truth taught, and that, Father, that even now as your people are gathered and thinking and praying, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would say, this is what I want you to do with this word. Do this and live. Father, I pray that we would finish well together, that we would be strong in our faith, that we would be confident, so confident in you, so confident in your promises, that in difficult days we would not lose our minds, that we would dig in deep. We grab hold of you and not let go. The things that we don't understand, we would say, Lord, by your Spirit, I want to know you. I want to know your word. I want to put these pieces together. I want to be faithful. And Father, we would not just persevere with teeth gritted, but Father, because we are yours, we are citizens of your kingdom, we are soldiers in your army, you are the king of kings. Father, that we would, by faith, with confidence, anticipate the victory that is promised us. We make our prayer, the prayer of so many saints and so many generations before us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until you do, find us faithful. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.